You're listening to SaaS Acquisition Stories, a podcast featuring the stories from both startup founders and buyers who have successfully gone through an acquisition process using Microacquire, the number one startup acquisition marketplace in the world. To date, Microacquire has helped hundreds of startups get acquired and has facilitated hundreds of millions in closed deal volume. Here's your host, Andrew Gazdecki. All right, I'm here with Lloyd Lobo, co-founder co-founder at Boast AI and Traction. Lloyd, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Love it, man. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat with you. Big follower of your journey as well. Yeah, I remember being on your podcast and I had a blast. I'm excited to, to learn about your journey. I guess my first question really is just, um, you know, for those that, I mean, I know you, what is your background? Um, you know, what what is Boast? What is Traction? Um, just any sort of context around that would be great. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I'll start with the journey of how I got into all of it, maybe at some point. But um, Boast automates tax credits and funding for businesses from the government, non-diluted capital. So globally, there's hundreds of billions of dollars given by governments to fund businesses and innovation. But it's a cumbersome manual process. It's prone to frustrating audits and receiving the money takes a long time. So we set out to automate that process by integrating with the company's tech and financial stack to figure out what government programs they qualify for and get them that money faster, more money faster for less time and risk. And uh, you know, my co-founder and I had known each other since we were 19 or so. We went to university together, we're partners in every project, and we studied engineering. After engineering, he got into Johnson & Johnson's engineering leadership program, then did a startup that failed and felt he needed to study accounting. And his unique combo of accounting and engineering took him into the world of R&D tax consulting. And after I finished engineering, I worked in product and growth at a couple of startups. And, uh, and so he called me and he said, hey, man, I think we should solve this problem. It's worth solving. And what was happening was I was at another startup and like, you know, the hustle porn culture is very alive in the startup community. And I used to work to like 10, 11. And one day I started going home at six and I get an email from my boss from the CEO of the company says, hey man, I used to love it when the office till late, eight, nine o'clock, whatever. Um, I'm seeing that you're going home at six this week. What's going on? Your wife is, my wife was in residency and uh, she's an ER physician. She your wife's a resident working hundred plus hours. What's causing you to go home? My parents were visiting in town. I hadn't seen them in a while. <laughs> so that's why right. I was going home at six. And so when Alex called me and he's like, I think we should do a startup in this space. I'm like, I don't give a shit what we do man. i was about to say i was like damn i mean we don't have the name names but uh, that's, uh, that's that's pretty poor leadership i mean <laughs> like you what? know it's, it's a lot of stress right and then once you're in those shoes you realize that you know external stresses causes founder stress and then like shit flows down the leg <laughs> but but when alex called me i said i don't care what we do as long as we can build a company yeah, uh, that we want to work for. I'm in, and so that started the journey. We we did a couple startups together. We did automatically, which was a chatbot built on top of Zendesk, uh, which failed. Some great learnings there. Um, we of course uh, did both, bootstrapped it to near eight figures before raising money, and then we built Traction together. Traction's a community for founders. It's got about 110,000 subscribers. You were on the show. We do two webinars a week two podcasts a week. We do meetups in different cities and an annual conference. And uh, yeah, we got, each session gets like tens of thousands of views. I think your session has over 10,000 views on YouTube. So that was that was the journey, but we built that community as a side hustle because when we started Boast, we were selling r tax credits to 
founders, CEOs of technology companies, and we didn't really have a brand. We started this company out of my co-founder's spare bedroom in his small apartment, and we're competing with the KPMGs, the PwCs, the giants. And so we're like, man, nobody's going to take notice. Nobody's going to listen to two hacks from the from their spare bedroom. So we said, hey, one great way is to build community. We've been failed founders ourselves. What do founders want and want to learn beyond R&D tax orders? They want to learn how to grow and build and scale their businesses, learn sort of off the record stuff on how to get, keep and grow customers, et cetera. So we started hosting these pizza nights and on different topics, invite a great speaker. And you know, it starts with your ideal customer profile and, and who are the people they follow and respect. So we started inviting key influencers behind the scenes, off the records, pizza nights. And those right, pizza me, nights. Yeah. Do you care if I, because I, I think um, this is something I'd really love to. So you have a, you have a hundred thousand members at Traction, right? Yeah. hundred thousand subscribers, a little more than that, maybe 110, some odd. Yeah. That's a lot. So community is, you know, a big topic for startups, startups these days. I've heard everything from a newsletter is a community, uh, you know, having an audience on Twitter as a community. Um, how do you how do you think about audience building? Like what what are maybe like what is your playbook? What is maybe common mistakes? Um, that's like five questions all at once. So I'll let you kind of pick the one. Uh, so I'll tell you one thing, right? Like audience is different than a community. Insta influencers, they're all audiences. People have newsletters, they're audiences. That's great. The community is where members or people, uh, the audience interacts with one another without the the sort of influ- key influencer involved, right? So like, I think audience to audience interaction is very important for a community and that strengthens the community and that keeps them coming. Uh, but if you have a great audience, I think the next step is how do you drive that audience to audience interaction? So for us with both, actually, we really didn't intend to build community. What ended up happening was we were having challenges uh, trying to get people to listen to us to buy our service. And we were scraping emails and making calls and it was just really hard. And so we we're like, you know what? We have challenges. We've been failed founders. Let's start Pizza Nights. What is, who's our ICP? Our target market is is a founder or CEO of a technology company. And this is like years ago, man, five, six years ago when like community wasn't even cool. And we started hosting these pizza nights on specific topics related to challenges. The first one, 10 people showed up. And then every time we'd host it, more and more people showed up. And then one day the co-working space is like, guys, you have 200 people in this co-working space. This is not a meetup anymore. This is a conference. Get out of here and like find a conference venue. And then that transitioned into hosting conferences and meetups and retreats. And, and now today it's like two webinars a week, two podcasts a week, meetups. I think, I think success is doing one thing consistently well over time. We kept doing these events. Um, I have this theory that I learned uh, from my friend, founder of Any Road, Jonathan Yaffe, that you know, right now we're sight and sound, right? Anytime we incorporate more than two senses into an equation, you start to build even stronger connections. Like when you're doing meetups, you're, you're drinking together, you're smelling each other's sweat, <laughs> you're shaking hands, uh, and you start building more and more genuine connections. And I, I, I strongly feel that us hosting more and more in-person events and meetups augmented with all the online stuff really help grow that community from like 10 people coming uh, every week we'd host it to now thousands of people, right? That's awesome. And, 
I, I, have, I, I have more questions for you on this that I think um, could be helpful for other, because I think a lot of SaaS companies today are looking to build a community or, I mean, we saw HubSpot acquire the hustle. We saw yeah. Stripe acquire any hackers. We saw uh, Zapier acquire, or Zapier, however you pronounce it, um, acquire MakerPad. Um, so community, you know, combined with, you know, uh, a startup can be extremely powerful, but there's so many different, I, I'd love for you to walk me through, um, you know, what you think a true community is and maybe some of the um, mistakes that you see. Because I see um, all the time people say, I launched a Slack room, everyone pile in, or I'm in like four communities on Twitter and they're all ghost towns. Um you know, what, um, I guess, put another way, um, would you bet on a digital community first? Or let's say, like, I'm just starting a community. Would you go digital first? Would you go in-person first? Like, how would you, like, kick off a community if you were just starting from scratch and you just had to, or would you start with a pizza night? It's like, one change thing. Yeah, so let, let's let's walk through it. I feel like building a community is no different than building a company and all the stuff you talk about, right? Like on, on your LinkedIn is identifying your ideal customer profile, solving one thing, doing it really well, nailing it, then scaling it. But walking through it, I'll tell you my, my first experience with community, why I'm so passionate about it is I was a refugee of the Gulf War in Kuwait. When that Gulf War happened, everyone in the country, all the leadership just peaced out. And so the community came together to rescue the people, to get the people out of the country. And, and for me, a community is like one person raises their hand, they have a problem. Few other people have the same problem. They come together to discuss it and then they keep doing it on a cadence and it sort of grows. And then this, my second big experience with community was the first startup I joined in product was a very small startup. And I was tasked with like figuring out how to grow this thing. And this is like 2006 when digital marketing wasn't a thing and it was all old school. And everything I learned about digital marketing was from HubSpot's inbound marketing community. They started doing all this digital content and courses and I, I got better and better at it. And then I started to implement that. And, I, and our company at the time was ranking number one for all those keywords from the strategies I learned from HubSpot. Then I started going to HubSpot's events, like their meetups and everything. And then the next thing you know, HubSpot comes and says, well, you know what? You could use all these other tools like Google Analytics and et cetera to manage this uh, uh, inbound marketing. But now we have an inbound marketing software. And so they didn't have, uh, they, they didn't really have a product in those early days when we were building that, that community. And, and so did Gainsight, very similar, right? So the way I look at it is there's three kinds of communities, uh, really two if you're looking at a SaaS company. There's a community of practice, which is bringing together people who share the common goal of learning about a specific field. And then there's a community of product where it's a space for users to ask questions about your product, share insights, and, and stay connected with the community, uh, with the company. Now, if you don't have product market fit or not very many users, you're just early on, you can't start a community of product, right? People think they, you're going to sell to them, right? I mean, it's obvious. Why would I go to a community of product when I don't know if I want that product and yeah, they barely have yeah. any users. So you start with the community of practice. And if you look at it, that's what Gainsight did, right? They, they, when they started, there were 600 people with the title customer success and customer success is nothing novel. All it is, is proactive customer support. And, uh, and they've identified that problem and they started creating a lot of education and awareness around 
hey, if you want to keep your customers and retain them, you need to be proactive in, in your customer support endeavors. And now today it's like a massive profession. So you start when you're just starting out and you don't have many users, start with a community of practice. In many ways, um, then it starts bringing people together. Like, you know, you've done in many ways as well, right? People are talking about acquisitions or micro acquires and so on, right? It's, it's not just a community of product. Like you were building in public before you even had a product, no? Uh, yeah, without knowing yeah. it though, I didn't know building in public was like a thing. And I would just do things that I thought I, the way I always try to think about, um, uh, marketing, uh, not community. I have more questions for you about community. Um, cause I'd love for you to walk me through, like if microquire was going to launch a community, how would you do it? Um, cause I got, I got the master on here. So I'm going to, I'm going to take, take advantage of that time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I'm always trying to think of ways to market in ways that don't feel like marketing, if that makes sense, like borderline entertaining. And I yeah. think that's, um, and you just brought up, um, Gainsight and they had a competitor called Detango. And I think, you know, their huge investment in brand events, community really like they wrote the, the damn book on customer success. You know, that's like, have you heard of Detango? I, I have, but like not compared to Gainsight, right? So yeah, of course, like see, Gainsight is the preferred brand in this space. Yeah, when I was CEO at Business Apps, we were looking at both products, Tango and Gainsight, and they were they were small at the time. So I, re- I remember seeing, you know, kind of the playbooks emerge. And I think another similar one, um, I don't know if you agree with this, but um, Gong and, and Chorus, you know, same product, yeah. but Gong has this just, uh, just, galvanizing maybe that's not the word but uh, you know such a strong brand and they bring so much data to salespeople, which creates kind of what you're saying you know a community of practice i believe i believe they're throwing some pretty big events now but um and they were always doing meetups and and everything else they were very engaged with their community um and and that's what i say right yesterday's innovation always becomes today's option and tomorrow's commodity you look at the gps right Perfect example. You couldn't get it. Then it was an option in the car. Now everyone has Apple CarPlay. If you build a community, you won't become a commodity because it creates that flywheel of connection between uh, the brand and the people in the community and the people in the community with the people in the community. So you get feedback, sales, case studies, and just all sort of bound by human to human interaction, right? If you look at Harley Davidson, they almost went bankrupt in the 80s and they rebuilt the company around. Um, the ethos of of community. And I call that a community of play because people from their company went out and started Harley writing clubs and it was around the joys of writing. And you didn't have to have a Harley Davidson to join the writing club, but if you keep going, then eventually you have this sort of um, um, token, which is the Harley bike. And that that creates further brand affinity. I love that. I got another um, little fun fact for you. You want to know how... um much money Ferrari may or how what percentage of revenue Ferrari makes from merchandise, not their cars. No idea. A just lot take, probably. Just take uh, a guess. Like what percentage of Ferrari's total revenue from like hats, keychains, shirts, that sort of stuff? Uh I don't know, 20%. 70. Wow. So so you know people have they built this community of Ferrari fans. And, and, and that's the thing. Your community doesn't have to be people who buy your product. They're people who are in love with your product or 
the emotion it drives. And even though they can own the most expensive piece of it, they own some token of it. And that could be merchandise, right? Yeah, I, so that's I, great. I, I was super surprised when I heard that. So um, do you care if I do this to you? Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, microquire. So we have um, a Facebook group. Um, we have uh, 150,000 registered buyers. Um, we're pretty active on, on social media. I've done one meetup personally. It was at my house after Saster. It's kind of a long story how that happened. I saw um, that. Yeah. And I almost came to that. But yeah. I had another event going on. Yeah. Backstory for the listeners. Um, so Saster, it was having their annual event and it was like five minutes from my house. And on Twitter, I just said, Hey, anybody want to come over? I'll buy some pizza we ended up getting like a taco truck and like 150 people like showed up in my backyard um which you know is kind of like scary like hey don't like break my house um but it all worked out um but so microquare um what like how would you build the community or what tips would you give me or what um you would you share because i'm sure there's other listeners kind of in the same position like okay i got you know, an audience, I have, you know, passionate customers. How should I be thinking about this from like step one and step two? Definitely. So the step one, like I talked about, right, practice or product community, I still think despite you have a great product, uh, I, I, and the product community, there's a need for that. How do we use micro acquire? How do we, how do we find better companies, success stories on how I found a company to acquire and scale it? You need all of that. You'll have that. But I still think the long game to become like a $40 billion company like the HubSpot is building that community of practice. So I think it starts with identifying who your ideal buyer is. Where do they eat, breathe, drink, sleep? And, and what does success look like for them? And then start with one thing. I know you have a Facebook group and you have a fantastic following and great content on, on, on LinkedIn. But I would start with that. Would you say that meetup was successful? It was there was no success defined behind it besides just you want to come hang out. I would say it was successful in the sense that people had a good time. I didn't do it like, Hey, this is like the micro choir meetup. It was just, if you're a founder and you're in town and you want to come by and meet up, let's do it. So I would say uh, no, in the sense that we didn't really put much thought into it besides just, do you want to come have talk? But, but people came. Now, would you would you say though? Because it's a, I guess it's a three sided marketplace in a way, right? Is it three sided? Is it two sided? Because you got acquirers, you got you got uh, sellers, and then you got all these things you need, like service providers for the transaction, right? Yeah. So we have buyers, we have sellers within microquire. You can uh, even hire an attorney, an investment banker, a business broker to help you with your deals. So there's kind of a marketplace inside a marketplace. So think of it as um, three ICPs um, and with uh, basically each ICP is an onion with many layers. So buyers ranging from, you know, multi-billion dollar private equity funds all the way down to just like first time buyers. Um, yeah. That's probably the biggest group, you know, a lot of numbers, 150,000 people, not all of them have millions of dollars. Um, and then, on the sell side, same thing, small startups ranging all the way down to, you know, multi-million dollar startups and then advisors as well, ranging from legal to just general M&A advisory. Um, so yeah, that's my answer. 
Yeah, so so if you look at the scape of that for Boast, it was many similar in many ways, right? It's the in the center, the most important ICP was for the founder because we help them get this government money. But who do they fund? Meaning, what tools they pay for? Who do they follow? Like folks like yourself and CEO of Twilio and whatnot. And who do they frequent? What magazines, blog they read? And so when we started doing our events, we started inviting all the influencers in the space. And then we'd invite like TechCrunch and VentureBeat and so on to, to run those interviews and be there. So when they show up, they're like, this is my tribe. And then the next time they do it, they show up again and they show up again. So I, I think the question starts with, you got like three, four ICPs here. Who do you think is the key ICP to start with? Because that start, if you try to build like a community for five, six different people, it's going to be very hard, right? Like what is the one community, what is the one sort of the biggest one? And then everyone sort of falls under that. Yeah, I would say founders for sure. Like one thing that we did with MicroQuare was we saw everyone favoring buyers in the market. And the one thing that we did differently, I guess very differently was we favored the seller with every product decision, every piece of content, you know, we don't have content like how to get like a really good deal out of a founder, how to negotiate the price down on the founder, our articles that we write and the content that we produce and kind of the message we want to, you know, convey is, you know, we put uh, the founder in the best position. So when they meet Mr. Private Equity, you know, they're prepared and, you know, understanding that, you know, it's a life-changing event for a founder, but it's Tuesday for you know, someone who's experienced in private equity. So I would, I would lean towards uh, a founder led community around. Um, uh, and know. that's, a, that's a bootstrap founder because it's not necessarily a venture back. Yeah, we typically, we do help some venture back businesses sell, but as you know, once you raise venture, um, yeah. you know, you're looking for typically a strategic multiple and most of the buyers are micro require financial. And so, uh, yeah, it'd be probably mainly bootstrap founders. It's, that's kind of the ideal ICP that we focus on. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thing is building a bootstrap company is very different than building a venture-backed company, right? Like the, some of the rules don't apply and it's even 10x harder. And so building a community starting with, you got all this great content anyway, and, and ultimately talking to them and trying to understand which you've done the research. I, I would say like you already have a community, you've done the research, you're producing the content. Now it's it's this next step of you have this great audience, you're connected with the audience. How do you bring the audience to communicate and connect with one another? Because then they go through this cycle, right? They get this, you know, you follow the journey of a bootstrap founder. How do they engage with you on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis, quarterly basis? And when I look at it, I'm like, uh, you know, there's, if you follow Nier Eyal's hooked model, which I, I really love is like, there's either an internal or an external trigger, which gets them to take an action. And that could be like, you're hosting two podcasts a week or a webinar, or you're doing an in-person meetup, they register, they meet somebody important or learn something important. They get a variable reward and then they get invested, meaning they subscribe to your future events or they decide to buy something or list their startup or even better, they invite three more friends and then they keep going through that cycle, right? And most, most companies and communities are doing these external triggers, which is emails, emails, emails. When I guess it hits Nirvana is when me as your community member, I have an internal trigger. Geez, it's 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. I got to hop on this, this webinar. 
right? You, you, you start, like it becomes a habit. It's like, I pick up my phone, I got to hop on LinkedIn. Why? Right? There's all these external triggers, but when you start becoming this preferred brand and preferred community, you start building this innate connection with your member. They start getting internal triggers, meaning I got to go and check it out. I got to go and check it out. So I think, I think you guys are doing a lot of the stuff already. It's like, and how do you, do you have a community only newsletter or uh, because I get your newsletter, but it's, it's not a community only newsletter. It's more like listings and stuff like that. Yeah, we, we do. So we also have a, a sister publication, bootstrappers.com. Yeah. And so we have a newsletter for that that we send out on Saturday and then Monday through Friday, we send out a daily newsletter, which is the top listings from the day before, basically. Yeah. So I would say your community is, uh, you know, the community that you want to build, if it's community of practice, is probably bootstrapper.com. That's, that's what I would venture without knowing too much more about your business. And, and there's like this sort of your, your community flywheel that drives the micro-acquire funnel. And that way people don't feel like they're going to be sold listings every single day of the week but they're in this community flywheel of they come, they engage with some content, they go to a meetup, they get some value, they invite friends and they keep going through that cycle. And maybe it's either a Facebook group or, or Slack group or circle. I mean, the tools are irrelevant. The process is more important where they're engaging online. They hop on online events, masterminds, podcasts like this. Once a month or once every other month, you do a retreat, layers into a conference, what would be really cool is like a lot of these bootstrap founders don't have resources or connections. Maybe launching masterminds is really helpful. Whatever it is, if, it's like doing it on a cadence is so important. I never thought like these webinars that we do two X a week would contribute so much to adding like 60,000 subscribers in, in two years. But it did because we're doing two X a week and every time there's hundreds and hundreds more people coming. And then it drives like almost 2 million views now on the YouTube channel, all from doing it consistently. Uh, and, and what I find is that that person-to-person -person connection is important. I think for bootstrappers, like I'm a bootstrap founder. I never had a mastermind. I built this all myself. If I, if, if it would be really cool if I was a, a part of a mastermind group that sold similar ACVs. And uh, it doesn't matter if they were ahead of me or, or behind me. But just that they sold similar ACVs, like so they were like B2B SaaS, sold $20,000 ACV deals in similar or one up, one down stages where we could have regular chats every two weeks. And then that builds that community. So I think there's some cool ideas to explore, but, you know, talk to the community. Yeah, I like that. And that's helpful. Uh, maybe maybe I'll be rolling out a, a community soon. Um so you already now, have a community, man. I think what you need to roll out is uh, more deliberate ways for people in your community to connect with each other beyond just engaging with with you as an audience member. Yeah, I, I really like the way that um, you phrased it the first time where it's a community of practice rather than uh, product. Um, I think that's, that's, a, that's a key quote you should, you should trademark right away. Um, <laughs> so... You got you got the startup um, boast. Um, you know, how did you get your first customer? Like, I probably already know the answer. You leveraged, um, I'm assuming, your community. But can you walk me through, like, what was that journey like from like zero to like the first like million? We just cold emailed and cold called uh, a ton of people, <laughs> and uh, and I love and that's it. I love it. 
there's there's no uh, you know you see um, I was an EI when I started the company. My co-founder was jobless, and we had to kill what we eat. And 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 you know this is this is a known unknown secret to bootstrapping. If you want to bootstrap a company and you have no 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 money whatsoever, right, and to build a product, go and get ten customers to pay you for a service that you deliver behind the scenes, Wizard of Oz manually. Customers want an outcome anyway; they don't want a piece of software. Get them that outcome, then use the money to to automate the things you did manually and push out the product, right? Like, you know, if I wanted to build a, a marketplace, I would facilitate 10 transactions manually, like a broker consultant. And that's what we did at Boast. We did like the first several clients manually. And then and we started saying, hey, what are the manual touch points? What am I doing uh, right now? Oh, I'm collecting a lot of data manually. Well, can I do integrations to pull that data in? Oh, then what's next? I'm doing workflow. Can I build that? Uh, you have data and you have workflow and you have a lot of that going on. Well, how do I automate it at scale? Well, then you can apply machine learning. So that was that was a good way to bootstrap is manually sell. I, I think, I'm an engineer, but I feel the most important skill for a founder to have is learning to sell because you're selling, first you're selling to your family that this thing is worth it. You're selling to co-founders, you're selling to customers, you're selling employees to join you for almost no money. <laughs> so you yeah. really need to get, get good at selling. I, I and, and it's hard to learn selling also in many ways. Uh, it, it, you can't just read books to do it, right? Um, I mean, I read Spin Selling, Make the Stick, Pitch Anything. But really the best way to do it is make 10 calls a day, send, send 100 emails a day, evangelize everyone, beg the best reps you know in your network to shadow them and join their calls. But there's no substitute for doing that. I would, you know, so back in the day when we started, we couldn't, there was no Zoom info. I didn't know of Zoom info. It was very expensive, even if it existed. So what I would do is go to, I think that was Crunchbase back then or AngelList, one of the two. I'd look at all the companies. I'd export them on a sheet. I'd post them on Mechanical Turk, which is a place where you know people can do low value tasks for pennies on the dollar and, and post that and with a script. And in the morning, they'd build the list. And then I would email those people and then call them and that show up. And then eventually I realized the hit ratio is really small. We're still getting somewhere. So then we started doing these, uh, these sort of pizza nights. And so then the, the cold emails changed from buy my shit to, hey, this shit is really valuable to you. We're hosting an event about it with XYZ speaker who's an influencer in the space. And they'd come to that event. And then, then I'd get the brand rub, right? Like, oh, this big name speaker, like Twilio CEO has come to their event or, or whoever, like, you know, you, you got to keep leveling up because Jeff Lawson is not going to come to your 10 person event, but like somebody who's strong enough brand will come, then you leverage their brand to get the next one and the next one and the next one. And so then we started getting really good at doing regular small meetups with like 20, 10, 20, 30 people. They would invite more people. And our brand would proliferate and it would make it easier to sell beyond just a cold email. Uh, that's what we started with a very local strategy. And then we expanded that strategy to different cities like, you know, Vancouver and Toronto. And, and, and so I, I, I love that. My, um, you want to hear kind of like how yeah, I yeah. got, uh, so prior to MicroQuare, I bootstrapped a company called um, Business Apps. Same exact thing, man. Like the software was so shitty. Like it literally only I knew how to use it. It had like no front end website. 
And what I did was I just cold called all the local businesses in my area and I'd manually build the apps. I'd do everything. And it was a basic, it, it, it was literally like, a, it would never work today. Um, but I would reinvest that revenue from customers to go get more customers. But the key was sales. It was selling the product, um, not really focusing on, you know, I think a big mistake that founders make is they think like everything needs to be perfect. And like everything needs to be automated and like to have your drip campaigns, like, you know, on day one, like, you know, I really, it's like, no, like just focus on getting your first customers in the door. Um, and then we eventually moved to, um, uh, a different model. Cause when you're bootstrapping, you know, you gotta be really, uh, in tune with, uh, we always focus on our customer payback period. Yeah. So how long like cash in, are we profitable? Um, and we got that to under 30 days through, we, we rolled out this, um, white label program from, uh, basically feedback from one of our, our biggest customers at the time. I think we were at like 2k and like annual monthly recurring revenue or something like that this is this is like 10 years ago um but uh key there was just talking to customers listening to what they need and then what we did is we shifted from a model where we were selling one app at a time uh to basically partnering with other people with pre-existing relationships with customers which could maybe be considered like a community so like we were basically kind of coming to someone like you at traction saying, hey, we got a product that I think your whole community would love. And when I say, um, in my context, it was a web design company. Like, hey, yeah. you built websites for these 50 restaurants. We have a product I think they would all love. Um, so just- And then like you do that, a rev share there. Yeah, like we would just basically yeah. say, hey, we'll build the apps for $30 a month. And then they would go and resell them for 100 a month with like a setup fee of like two thousand dollars like some some partners made good money we were like rethinking our strategy at times like jesus like but my point being is um you know talking to customers like not being afraid to get on the phone because it's so necessary in the early days especially when you're bootstrapping because you don't have the luxury of big marketing spend you know big um you know making everything pretty on day one like you you have to be like super scrappy. That doesn't mean cheap. It just means like you got to really want to make it work and get it off the ground. It sounds like you, you did that really well. You know, that. pain is the precondition for growth. And, uh, you know, I, I'll keep saying this. Success is one or two things done consistently well over time. That consistency is important. The first time I picked up the phone to make a cold call, I'll remember because I was never a salesperson. I was an engineer. Um, my I felt like, you know, I, I could just visualize all the bad things would happen in the call and my heart would beat, beat, beat. And then when the person answered the phone after trying multiple times, I just hung up because I didn't have the balls to carry the conversation. Dude, dude imagine. <laughs> so my cold calls were to, to restaurants. So this is in 2010 when the iPhone just came out. And so we, we, we knew this strategy wasn't going to scale. So that's why we moved towards more of a partnership uh, white label reseller model. We call restaurants and be like, hey, what's like your mobile app strategy? There's obviously a better sort of script than that, but they'd be like, apps? Like, are you, are you asking about our appetizers? And we're like, no, like mobile apps. <laughs> and they're like, what? So I think we were a little, a little early there, but I mean, 
just talking and just hearing from customers, like, and I did the same thing with microcards. I've done it across all my companies where, you know, the first thing is basically cold email, get them on the phone, learn from them, uh, figure out what the playbook is. Um, and then from there, it's kind of just, you know, we could probably have another podcast on this, but just build out a sales team, build out processes, you know, take what you know that is working and have someone else, you know, enable someone else to do it. And then you kind of get to a point where you have, you know, a predictable and repeatable business model. And that's when you scale. A lot of people just want to, um, a lot of people just want to do stuff, uh, not themselves, but hire. Like, oh, I want to go and hire the first rep. And I tell people, the knowledge you gain from selling yourself because you don't have product market fit. So how do you know if somebody's going to come to be able to sell it? Like selling, so like startups are building phases, right? Phase one is validation. Let's call it that. You get 10 customers to pay you to try it out because the message resonates. The next phase is every time they have that problem, they keep coming back. So you have high retention. And, and before you have that high retention product market fit, um, you got to, switch your messaging maybe a hundred different times. It's hard to find a seasoned sales rep who's going to be able to do that founder sales. It's, it's, I've not found that person. Right. And so you got to learn to sell and pivot and, and, and you know, sort of pivot on the fly, make up shit on the fly. There's a lot of, a lot of learnings there. It's indispensable and probably the best skill you have. And, and once you learn that actually, so when I, when I was reaching out many times, I would say, Hey, I'm a, uh, I'm an entrepreneur working on such and such industry. I saw you're an expert in the space. I'm not looking to sell you anything. I was hoping to get your advice. Do you have 15 minutes to spare? Then hop on the call more on that message. And then I dive into like the whole spin selling model, like understand the situation, a day in their life, what problems they're facing, what are the implications? And if they had a magic wand, how they would solve it. And then I asked them like, would you be willing to hop on a pilot for this and then keep them updated? I still run the rest of the process with follow-ups and everything as a sales call. And that helped me craft the messaging for eventual sales, right? But you, you test a lot of things. When you don't have product market fit or like you don't have repeatability in selling yourself as a founder, I, I think it's very hard to expect somebody to come and figure it out for you. They'll probably take longer to do it. I would say it's completely impossible. I mean, it, it can be done, but I think I talked to a lot of founders that are like, hey, we're looking to kick off sales. I'm looking to hire VP of sales. I'm just like, have you tried selling yourself? Because, you know, like you need, number one, it'll make finding the correct VP sale um, hire easier because you'll know kind of like, what is your LTV? What is uh, the sales cycle length? You know, it just makes it so much more easier than just hire a person. I hope you figure this out. Um, Because you're right, as a founder, on the fly, you can be like half off or you can be like, will put you in a pilot. Like you're able to just kind of be flexible and you could argue that you can hire someone to do that, but I'm in complete agreement that, you know, I think if you went through and asked and, you know, I, I, from my experience of doing this, of just successful founders like yourself, they all figured out the sales process on their own and they did not outsource it. They did not hire for it. Um, They, they grew into it. You know, if you figure it out, you nail it and then you scale it. Um, but if you do that too early, you know, you basically can go, you know, two quarters and then, you know, the salesperson quits, doesn't work. Um, 
and then you burnt all that cash that could have been used for something else. So I'm, I'm in full agreement with you there. Um, I guess, you know, I know we're, we're kind of coming up to time here. Um, you know, this has been like so much good advice on just community building and just, you know, first thing to do when you're, you know, getting a company off the ground. Um, what, what are some other like, you know, key principles that like you operate under when you're building companies? Definitely. So the first uh, few frameworks I learned the hard way and also following great people like yourself and Jason Lemkin, Mark Roberts. And, and so the one thing is I'm, I hate reading. It's not that I hate reading, but I was never really good at it. And so I'm like, I'm not, I'm not against learning. So two ways for me to learn was learn by doing, take on tasks and, and keep doing it. And so as a founder, I have this disgusting habit of being an IC a lot of the times. I've done everything from SEO to email blast to everything myself. And then interviewing lots of smart people like yourself twice a week. But the, the frameworks one, I think uh, the, the key frameworks when building a company are that are indispensable is one, it's really important to have great alignment. Great companies have great alignment, right? Like your purpose, what is that forever? Your vision, why do you exist? What will the world look like because of us? How do we do it? Your mission. And then how do you behave? Your key values. And I think this is really, really important because it comes back to bite you, right? When you're poor and you can't afford it, you compromise on values. But as soon as you start making money, if founders or execs are not aligned on the same values, like maybe one person is not transparent, but the other person believes in supreme transparency, it never works out. It causes like undue friction later on in life, right? With, with whomever. Um, so that, that is one, like having a great framework for your purpose, vision, mission, values, and, and aligning people on that. The other thing is like startups are built in phases. You, you, first you validate, maybe get five, 10 people to try you out. And, and that is all pushing your elbows out and cutting with elbows, anything like cold email, going to a hundred events in a geo-targeted location, whatever it is, get 10 people to pay you if it's a B2B SaaS. Uh, to try it out. And then you move to product market fit. Then you figure out a reputable channel, scalable channel. Then you scale. And I, I find a lot of times where I failed is not focused. You're trying to validate to get 10 customers, but then you're also trying to perfect your um, your website. And you're saying, oh, you know what? Maybe I should have uh, HubSpot and all of this. You're trying to do like too many things, boil the ocean. Like, don't do that. If you need to validate, just focus on validating. If you need to get to product market fit, just optimize for high retention and, and, and those kinds of things. People, I feel like they do too many things. And especially when you're bootstrapping, too many things will, will kill you. You, do, you know, he and Shah at all. Have you heard of him? Yeah. 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 So he was an advisor at a previous company, uh, Speakeasy. And he comes to the office one day and he's like, uh, show me a marketing plan. And this is a company's audit product market fit. We're like just getting launched. And I showed him this massive marketing plan with like 19, 20 channels. And he sinks in his chair and like goes red in his face. And he's like, burn your fucking slides down in front of the whole team. And I'm like, why? He's like, this is the marketing shit list. This is how you're going to fail. What's the one channel that's working? I'm like, cold email, but not quite really, right? Because it's not giving us enough. He's like, just jam more data. You're sending 50 emails, sell 500 a day. Just don't do 100 things. You're going to fail. And I, and I realized that the hard way. So, you know, build in phases, uh, time box things. And then another framework is uh, leveraging data to nail everything from your ICP to the marketing activity you invest in. I often like this um, product score, uh, framework called RICE, right? How many people it's going to reach? What is the impact it's going to have? What's your confidence and what is the ease? So if I were testing a market, for example, let's say market one is 
customer service uh, leaders in enterprise tech versus customer service uh, leaders in enterprise CPG. Then I would look at what is the market size, what is the propensity to pay and ease of access. Then I'd go and mine thousand contacts in each and I'd cold call, cold email, run, run cheap ads to all of them to see where it's hitting more and where I can close more and then double down there. Uh, those are really three I, key frameworks I've learned. Yeah, I, I, I subscribe to, to all that. So a plus one for me, like, like I'm a, I'm a big believer in, you know, you want to, you want to have a, you know, if I could summarize your first one and the way I would interpret it is, you know, you want to have a, a, a team of stars and not just a team of, you know, uh, all stars, if that makes sense. And what I mean is, you know, you want a, a team like a basketball team that they're passing the ball, you know, like they're getting along together. They're all aligned. They're on the same page We're we're clear on direction. And it's not like, you know, five LeBron James and they all want the ball. And like, you know what I mean? Like those types of cultures, um, like one of my, uh, my least favorite sayings is like, just, you know, hire the smartest people and hope there's, there's, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but like, um, you know, rather than hiring just a, the smartest people you can find, you want to find people that like enjoy working together, like are aligned around what you're trying, like get excited about like your company's mission. I think that's super important. Um, and then your, 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 your last point, I think really resonated just today. I, I tweeted something out, like maybe it was last night. It was like, please just keep doing the boring marketing stuff that's working before you expand in other channels. Like just, yeah. Yeah, just keep doing what's working. Like, okay, for a long time and then expand. Like, I think a lot of founders like get in this trap where Facebook ads start working really well. Okay, check mark. Now time, but it's like, no, 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 no. Like optimize that, like squeeze every, you know, and then expand into another channel and then expand into another channel. And I think the same could be said about, you know, building features like, which we, we could probably do another podcast on, you know, really market the features you have before and sell the features you have before you go building more that people potentially don't want. But I think also just the clarity of focus in terms of understanding what stage you're at and, and yeah, sometimes you get actually more often than not to get a startup off the ground. You gotta, it's brute force, you know, it's like, it's not sexy. It's not like a lot of people want to be a startup founder, but like the part I think a lot of people don't understand is it's a lot of fucking hard work. Like it's, it's a, a lot, lot of hard work, unpaid bills. And, you know, when it comes to this focus, I, I tell people a lot, when the world is going buffet, you should be Michelin star, right? Like just do a few things really well. And a lot of times also you get into this trap, right? You say like, let's look at it from a validation, product market fit, product channel fit, and then scale. At scale, they realize, shit, it worked really well for us in this one market or this, this one ICP or whatever it is. Now let's scale it to 10 other markets or one other market. They immediately go and put all the same amount of resources that they have in scale in one market in another market versus going through that same model. Again, let's go and validate the ICP in that market. See if the same message resonates when you need to tweak. They, 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 you know, we started small to get to scale, but then when you launch the next act or the next channel, they go big immediately versus going starting small, right? Yeah. I see that happening a lot. Yeah, I completely agree. And sometimes I can flop too, you know, like when you have like a, a very, very, um, you know, let's say maybe there's so many examples of this. Um, 
I'm trying to think of a good one off the top of my head, but uh, like the TAM of your market can grow over time. So there's always like that, you know, uh, want to go up market, sell to higher value customers. Um, for some businesses, that is the clear playbook and is a natural progression. Typically, you know, big enterprise company just usually kind of pulls you up naturally. Um, but at business apps, we, in our, you know, values, like, um, you were saying, we said we serve small businesses, so yeah. we never built like enterprise functionality. And that I think was, uh, you know, key to our success because it really kept us focused on who are we selling to? And we didn't get, you know, shiny object syndrome. I'm like, this one customer will give us a hundred K if we do this. But I mean, you, again, thinking of like the rice model, like, we would say, well, it's just for that one customer and we have all these other customers that want this. So we're going to stay super focused on this market here. Um, anyways, uh, this this has been an awesome, awesome chat, Lloyd. Um, one point I want to add, like eventually you bootstrap, you make a lot of money, you realize, geez, I'm making money, I'm successful. Now I got to, I got to start scaling my life, right? I got to, I, I would say, you know, one of some of my hardest learnings were not making enough time for family. And I think self-care is not selfish. It's, it's great stewardship towards yourself personally and, and towards the business. But then you realize like, I got to create time for myself. Um, and I got to abstract myself from being an IC and, and like companies go through validation, product market fit, product channel fit and scale. Founders also make that journey from, you know, when you're starting out, you're an individual contributor, then you got to be a manager, then you, you got to earn the right for that next title and the next title. And I see a lot of founders, what they do is they want to immediately abstract from being an IC to a C-suite, and then they go and hire these C-suites. And especially when you hire at a small company, you hire a big company C-suite. Um, I think... Um, the Swiss army knife or the jack of all can stretch longer than you think, right? Because when you hire a big company C-suite, they want to hire people who hire more people and um, it I, becomes I, really tough. I, I literally was telling someone like, please don't hire someone in the early days that needs a team to get stuff done. Like you want, you want builders like at the beginning, like people that, you know, that's another thing when hiring too, is like in the early days, those people are going to be, ideally all individual contributors and, you know, and then your role as a founder, you, you know, you eventually move towards being a CEO and, you know, kind of your goal as a CEO, in my opinion, at least is to, you know, eventually get to a point where you fire yourself from every role and you're basically putting leaders in place that are better than you, but that's, you know, that's when you're well into, you know, let's call it like 10 million post um, uh, 10, 10 million in annual recurring revenue and above minimum. Um, kind of a weird role where, you know, it's kind of a good thing when you get fired from, from certain roles. But, um, I also do think, you know, um, like at business apps, I was always on the sales floor. I was always taking customer support, always having like a close pulse on the customer, but not inundating yourself, like maybe piggybacking off your, um, last comment where, you know, it's also important for founders to know your, your job changes and you do need to hire people to free yourself up so you can think about what's what's coming next rather than just, you know, dealing with kind of what's happening day to day, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, I, I think like you can stretch doers, more doers, less talkers. 
I have this, this saying, if you keep hiring and promoting people based on tenure versus this trajectory, you will become the very thing you set out to disrupt. <laughs> yeah. And that means like uh, people with high trajectory question a lot. Uh, they tend to use their hands a lot. And I think you can stretch that in many cases, post 10 million even, you know, uh, and you got to find those people and equip them versus finding people with many, many years of experience um, sometimes passion and trajectory is more important than just having years of experience in the resume. I, I completely agree. My motto is always hire for motivation, attitude, and skill set in that order because I can't teach the other two. Um, obviously, you know, for certain roles, skill sets is, you know, required, but I'm always looking for are you motivated to work at the company? Will you have a good attitude? I know it's maybe probably you know, a contrarian view, but I always tell my team like, Hey, I got to work here too. So, um, you know, I want to work with people that are motivated, fun to be around good attitudes. Um, cause I think, you know, when things get hard, which they will inevitably at a startup, when you have a team of just like optimists rather than pessimists, it just makes everything so much easier in my experience. But Again, maybe maybe a topic for another day. Um, but Lloyd, thanks so much for for joining me on this podcast, dude. This has been a wealth of knowledge. Um, where could people find you if they want to, you know, learn more? Just uh, look me up on LinkedIn, Lloyd. My name is uh, not hard to find. It's Lloyd with an E, Lobo. I'm taking a bit of a LinkedIn and social hiatus. Um, I pr- I wanted to run an experiment and see if I go completely off social. I mean, I'm still there. I don't post anything. And I've done that for the last three months. How does my personal life improve? Of course, my physical health improved. I spent more time with my kids and they were complaining. I got three kids. Two of them were, one's a newborn and two, one is eight and four. And they were complaining. I'm not spending enough time with them. So I took the time to travel and, and spend more time with them and the family and the social hiatus was was uh, was good in a way because it created some other personal life habits for me. So I'll be back probably mid-July. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're a legend, dude. Congrats, congrats on all your success. I'll put um, links, everything in, in the show notes, but um, thanks for, thanks for the chat, man. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, definitely. And I dropped the link to our Spotify and the, and the traction uh, website as well. The, all the YouTube talks and everything are, are there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Love and peace, my friend. Wishing you great success. Love what you're doing. Big fan. Yeah, I'll probably be, I'm coming to one of your pizza nights, so maybe order two. Yeah, we'll All do. Right. We'll we'll do one together, maybe in Austin. Or yeah, one, one pizza, me and you. All yeah. right, man, good chatting. Good chatting, bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the SaaS Acquisition Stories podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, make sure to like and follow on your preferred channel. And if you know a friend or colleague that would benefit from hearing this conversation, please share it with them. For more information on MicroAcquire and how we can help you start conversations that lead to an acquisition in just 30 days, check us out at microacquire.com. We'll see you next time.